there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. syndicated game show broadcast its first episode this month and has been on TV ever since. What is Jeopardy? Meanwhile, on NBC, Miami Vice made its premiere, pushing network TV style forward, whether it wanted it or not. And The Cosby Show also premiered, turning stand-up star Bill Cosby into the single biggest sitcom star of the decade and changing the way black families were portrayed on television forever. By the Cars was the big winner at the first annual MTV Music Video Awards, and President Reagan refused to impose sanctions against South Africa, vetoing strong measures that had already been approved by Congress, despite growing support for the idea that something had to be done about apartheid. Things were definitely heating up around the world in September of 1984. I'm Drew McWeeny, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Scott Weinberg after a brief break so we can talk about the month where I almost quit the show. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for being patient with us while we took a week off. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I needed a little breather as we geared up for this episode. This is a tough month. It's a tough year. We've had some stress. When you're doing 24 in a month, it gets a little dense. And I think it's hard when the lineup is not great. And when you have a mediocre month, sometimes our like mission statement gets lost because it sounds like, <laughs> oh, we're just trashing six obscure movies from 1984. But no, the goal is to go month by month. And there have been some times where we look at months and go, this month sucks. And what are you going to do? You can't change uh, history. And we're going to start this one with a really bizarre, obscure, fascinating movie in many ways. Drew, let us discuss Nothing Lasts Forever. I pray to God, the Buddha, James Joyce, Ramakrishna, and Jesus the Christ that I will become an artist, no matter what. Listen to me carefully, young man. We may never meet again, but I want you to know one thing. What? You will get everything you want in your lifetime. Only you won't get it in the way you expect. I had had this thing on my radar because Leonard Maltin included it in his movie guide, even though it never came out. I'm not sure what Leonard's rationale was, but it was supposed to come out in September of 84, originally theatrically. Two weeks before it was supposed to come out, everything fell apart, and it just didn't. And as a result, this thing has become this weird sort of artifact. And when I was working in New York in the early 90s, my agent was the same agent who represented Tom Schiller, the writer-director of the film. 
And so I finally got a copy on videotape and I got to see it. Since then, MGM has actually started showing it on Turner Movie Classics occasionally. And I think that is terrific. I'm glad that it is finally leaked out and it has some sort of commercial life. Tom Schiller is a very talented uh, writer, director. He did a lot of early shorts for Saturday Night Live. Yep. Cobbled this together, it stars Zach Galligan, Lauren Tom, has small work by Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Imogene Coca. It's got a score by Howard Shore. And it like very much evokes like a 1940s kind of screwball comedy, but then it gets kind of bittersweet. Well, and even builds it out of old footage in a lot of places, but it's not Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid where it's a joke. It's just that's the world he's building. So having said all that, I don't think it's a very good movie. Schiller was a really smart writer, but his... Short films worked as short films. They were quick ideas, and they were one punch, and then they would get out. This feels like a short that just doesn't end and just doesn't go away. And the world that it's building is so arch, and it's so fake that after a while, you have trouble connecting to anything. It deals with a hapless, how would you describe the Zach Galligan? Well, he wants to be an artist, and he doesn't have any artistic skills, which hinders him when they give him a test before he's allowed in New York City to determine whether or not he can actually be an artist. And he fails miserably, so... Then it gets super weird, where he hops on a bus to the moon. And, <laughs> and, and you know, it, 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 things definitely pick up at that point. Uh, but even then, it just kind of spins its wheels a lot. I am glad that I got to see it finally, and I did enjoy parts of it, but... It's not bad enough for MGM to just said, oh, my God, this is garbage. Yank no. it off the schedule. I don't think that's ever been the problem. I think it's a legal issue. I think that they have they have rights problems and they've tried over the years. I know Bill Murray has done appearances with the movie and it certainly has the support of everybody associated with it. It's not like anybody's embarrassed by it or doesn't want it out. Schiller has certainly done screenings of it and Q&As for it, but it's just a legal issue. And I don't know that they'll ever fully solve it. There's a weird thing where you can show it on cable, but you can't release it on home video because one triggers a payment system, the other one doesn't, and it's weird. Now let's move on to a film that I had been aware of my whole life, had no interest in it, and now I really like it. Oh, hi, Martha Plimpton. Let us discuss The River Rat. When Billy McCain came home from 13 years in prison, he thought he'd seen everything till he met up with his own daughter, Johnsy. Saw this show on TV about prisons. Guys taking dope, stabbing each other with ice picks and stuff. You know what they said they did? Said they raped each other. Is that true? Paramount Pictures presents The River Rat. What the hell do you think you're doing, dog? You get some clothes on! Have you ever stick a knife at anybody? I'm just curious about stuff like that. Tommy Lee Jones as Billy, and introducing Martha Plimpton as Johnsy. Where was I, you know, conceived? In the car, I bet. Was that it, Billy, in the backseat of the car? Where did you learn how to talk like that? I kind of talk so much because you don't ever ask me nothing. The River Rat. And it's a solid little family thriller. Because it came out around the same time as two films that we're going to cover later in this episode, uh, Country and Places in the Heart. Well, there were so many farm movies that year. And we'll get to The River later this year. So, yeah, it's we're not done. Let's take a moment, first of all, just to pay tribute to screenwriter, director Thomas Rickman. This was his first film as a director. Before this, he was, uh, he was a really cool screenwriter. He wrote Hooper, for God's sake. He wrote The Laughing Policeman. He wrote WW and the Dixie Dance Kings. And, most importantly, he wrote Coal Miner's Daughter. This guy was a really solid Heartland writer. The River Rat is about a guy who gets out of prison after a long stint. He's played by Tommy Lee Jones. He has to reconnect with his estranged daughter, as played by Martha Plimpton. The reason he went to jail, the money, he had stolen a bunch of money, might still be hidden deep in the river. And the guy who got him out of jail believes in that money. 
Brian Dennehy, and boy, is he awesomely evil in this movie. When he is either very sweet or very evil, I think that's when Brian Dennehy is at his best. The visual of Brian Dennehy towering over little Martha Plimpton, he's extra terrifying because he's huge compared to her. She's fantastic. She's on my wish list of gets for the bonus episodes because she lived through so much of the 80s and worked with so many people at such a great age. And she was always awesome. It's a lot better than I thought. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. It's written so well. It's not a Disney-type family movie. <laughs> I would say it's a family film, but it's a family film that's very honest. And uh, like I said, also, the I love the fact that even though this is set in what is clearly a very poor community and they are scrounging for survival and it is all sort of deep bayou and uh, there's no condescension. There's nothing about this movie that is in any way treating this like, especially you got to remember we're in the middle of sort of exploitation bonanza in the early 80s and late 70s. That's not this movie. And I think it's really smart about that. So we're going to move from one film that is about family to a very different film about family. The truly memorable and bruising The Ballad of Narayama. Dude, the English version should be called Gut Punch. There have been two versions of this. This is based on a novel, and the first adaptation was in the 50s and is on Criterion Collection and is a very heightened, stylized, theatrical, almost kabuki presentation of the, the same ideas. Uh, that's by Kayasuke Kinesita, and the first version is very good and very striking. This is the remake by Shoei Imamura. This is about the practice of obasute, a cultural practice where when you reach the age of 70, you have to go away to die. And you are taken to the top of Narayama Mountain, where you are just left until the elements do their job. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes the year it premiered. And I agree with you, Scott. This is one of the most brutal, difficult things we've sat through so far on the show. There's not a moment in this movie that isn't designed, I think, to make you profoundly uncomfortable. What I got from this movie is not just that the filmmaker was fascinated by this disturbing and tragic section of Japan's history, but by presenting it in such a flat and matter-of-fact fashion, that makes it an indictment. What are we to treat our own this way? Drew, not to get light, but do you think that the writer of Logan's Run was aware of this tradition <laughs> and kind of made it like, hmm, wouldn't that be interesting if in the future, instead of 70, we kill people at 30? Am I stretching? <laughs> These guys have it so good. <laughs> all you have to do is make it to 70. 70, my God. Look at all the time you have. The, Imamura, when he started as a filmmaker, he apprenticed under Ozu in the 50s. And Ozu's films about Japanese society are, in their way, lacerating, but they are quiet laceration. And I think Imamura's work and the work of guys of his generation feels like a reaction. It feels like they went, no, there's so much ugly underneath our culture that we don't talk about, we act polite about. And this isn't just about Obasute, which it would be enough for an entire movie. But before she goes, this is about a woman in her final year before she has to leave. And 
and she's still trying to settle her family. She's got three sons. And so in addition to the Obasute practice, you also have all the rules about who's allowed to marry, who's allowed to have sex, who's allowed, what roles each son in a family has. Daughters are often sold into prostitution. And there are so many cultural rules and codes to navigate that her sons are broken. The first son who's allowed to marry is a disaster in one way. Her second son is this gross, weird, freaky, horny animal person because of the rules. So this entire movie is taking apart this Japanese culture that isn't allowing any of these people to live the way they would live, like just as human beings. Do we have American filmmakers that are this scathing or uh, accusing of our own culture? I don't know. I think it's hard sometimes to be this kind of objective from within a culture. And the fact that this is the one step removed of history allows him, I think, the perspective to say, look at how crazy these rules are. And uh, above everything, you have to comment on Sumiko Sakamoto, who plays the central mother. It's an amazing performance. And there's a awful moment involving her teeth. I will just say that. And as far as I can tell, they really did something to her teeth. Because there's a chunk of this movie where she doesn't have any, and it's not an effect. This is a Robert De Niro raging bull level commitment to a performance from a human being who, in any rational conversation, this would have been one of the two or three performances everyone talked about in 1984. Look, I'll never shake it. It's a very memorable, very haunting, very bruising experience. All right, and so is Exterminator 2. New York City. Robert Ginty cleaned up the streets in Exterminator 1, and the city has been quiet. Until now. Robert Ginty. One man pushed to the limit, fights back in Exterminator 2. Exterminator 2 is about a film producer who saw how many sequels Death Wish was getting. (laughs) That's not what it's about. Oh, I see what you did. Is this better or worse than Executioner 2? It is better than Executioner 2. It is an actual film. And there are a couple of moments in this where things kind of look cool. There's a little bit of style. And then he blows it. Like director Mark Buntsman cannot hold it together for an entire film. You have to tell people who Mark Buntsman is. Please. I mean, what are you doing? Why do you talk down to our listeners, dude? I'm tired of it. Mark Buntsman, and you say, Steven Spielberg, he's a director. So arrogant. I had to actually look at the screen to make sure I got it right when I said it. That's how bad that is. (laughs) Yeah. It's a movie. I'll give it that. And there was a certain point in this film where I realized, I don't think you're a good guy if you're using a flamethrower. I really don't care who the bad guys are. That's an awful way to kill somebody, for God's sake. What bugs me about this is they don't, if you're going to do a cheap B sequel, you got to top your original. And there's nothing in this movie that tops the guy getting dropped into an industrial meat grinder. So, therefore, your sequel fails canon. It's one of those movies where it feels like it's two or three different films. It kind of lurches from moment to moment. There's no sort of rhythm. And the few moments that are stylish or that look like they were actually shot with care don't connect to anything around them. But uh, aside from Robert Ginty and an over-the-top Mary of Van Peebles, what do we, we also have um, early Arya Gross, very early John Turturro. Really not good. 
yeah, not good. And uh, and one of those that having seen it now a second time, I can guarantee I will not remember it if it ever comes up again in three weeks. You know what I'll always remember? The visage of one Ornella Muti in Swan in Love. Jeremy Irons stars in the stunning adaptation of Marcel Proust's modern literary triumph, Swan in Love. A wealthy gentleman risks losing everything, his soul, his status, his self-respect, driven mad by his own jealousy and erotic desire for a promiscuous courtesan, Italy's beautiful Ornella Muti. I used to think she was ugly. Then, like a fool, I fell in love with her and it's like a disease. From director Volker Schlondorf, winner of an Oscar for The Tin Drum, Swan in Love. Uh, Have you ever seen The Tin Drum? I have not. That was a movie I saw too young the first time, and it freaked me out. And Probably why I never saw it, because whenever I hear Tin Drum, all I ever hear is, that shocked me to my core. And I'm like, you know what? My core is fine. It's not a Serbian film. It's not trying to mess you up, but it's definitely, it is a crazy ride. And this is the same filmmaker, this is Volker Schlorndorf, and... He seems to love really difficult challenges because if you were to say, okay, you're going to adapt uh, Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, how do you do that as a movie? I I don't know. A dry comedy of culture. Uh, It's about a uh, fancy man who falls in love with a courtesan. And we all know that high society would never allow such a pairing. And it creates, get this, conflict. He has to decide if his affections and carnal desires are more important than societal norms and being accepted by a bunch of phonies. And I'll tell you right now, if I could marry Ornella Muti from 1983, you could cover me in shit for the rest of my life. I wouldn't care. A solid film. It is certainly the art house equivalent of a Skinamax film in that it is very sexually frank, and that is a big part of the charge of the movie. But... It's smart. It's well-observed. And I want to give Muti credit because I think a lot of people only know her for Flash Gordon in America. And a lot of it is because it's in their native language. And you realize, oh, my God, she's really good in this. I think she almost blows Jeremy Irons away in this movie because she has the harder job. It's a crazy character and it's a crazy arc. And she's the one that society is constantly squeezing in this film. So that's that's another strong art house entry this week. Here's a third one. The obscure but delicate American musical drama. When you live in New York's ghetto, you either get tough or get out. Body rock. If canon was the first to kind of like <laughs> jump on this new trend of, of rap and hip hop, and they actually ended up making two pretty interesting documents of the early stages of hip hop. Then Roger Corman came along and said, you know who can do this better? White people. (laughs) (laughs) Remember how I complained about the really tall nerds at the end of Footloose who start breakdancing out of nowhere? Yeah. This movie is about those guys. It's top that, the movie. (laughs) Was I on PCP for 10 seconds or did I see that the music in Body Rock, was done by Phil Ramone. Yeah, some of it was produced by Phil Ramone. Yeah, it's truly a terrible movie, even by the standard of just crappy rap and breakdancing movies. This is truly just a swipe. Uh, I would say Breakin' and Breakin' 2 are Amadeus compared to Body Rock. How about that? If there is a barrel, this is what's under it when you lift it to look at the bottom. So, yeah, it's terrible. Now... I am ready. Are you ready? Buckle up. There are times 
when I feel privileged to do what we do. And one of those times was during the first 10 minutes of Ninja 3, The Domination. He is the most feared and powerful warrior. A ninja who breaks from ancient tradition and explodes onto America. His soul possesses the body of an innocent woman and transforms her into a lethal assassin. Where Revenge of the Ninja left off, Ninja 3 begins. An epic struggle of superhuman strength and supernatural forces. Ninja 3, The Domination. Search Ninja 3 Domination opening scene and you will see God. One ninja fights every cop on the planet Earth on a golf course. Absolutely. As B-movie insanity, I love the first <laughs> 15 to 18 minutes of this movie. And if the rest of the movie had kept up that pace, it might be my favorite B-movie of the year. But it really loses some steam once the ninja is finally dispatched and his spirit enters Lucinda Dickey working as a telephone pole operator they just looked at Flashdance and they said, uh, what's up my man normally does? Oh, those guys who climbed the telephone poles? Done, done, done. She's had a big year, man. Lucinda Dickey between this at Breaking and Breaking 2. I don't even need to ask the question. I guarantee she read for Sarah Connor. There is such a small community of people that could actually carry these B-movies and were sellable. And Lucinda Dickey, by this point, was starting to build a name in pre-sales. I guarantee she read for Sarah Connor and uh, and probably could have done it. We got the right one later. But yes, it's it's funny looking at this. She's right in that exact wheelhouse. She's doing the same kind of stuff that Linda Hamilton was doing at that time. And I think she's fine considering what this is. Yeah, no, she is given a ridiculous premise and a ridiculous screenplay, and she does a fine job. Yeah, and Shokasugi, this is supposed to be his movie, you would think, but it's really not. Like, the Ninja Trilogy, which is as loose a trilogy as you can possibly have. Enter the Ninja, and then Revenge of the Ninja, and Ninja 3, The Domination. And if you can find a through line between those three movies... Get in touch with us on Twitter because we would love to hear it. Um, but I love the first 18 minutes truly unironically. They are fun to watch. It, it kind of wants to become like a possession horror movie in a way. Oh, very much that's what it is. Yeah, if it stuck more with action, ironically, I think I would have liked it better. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of things that I really like, Drew, you know who I really like? Dude, you're talking about my beloved Karen Allen. Yes, let us discuss the rare Karen Allen starring film, Until September. She's an American tourist, stranded in Paris. He's sophisticated, rich, and French. Why do you always lie? Answer me, damn it. Don't go away. I'm trying to tell you I'm in love with you. Will you stay with me? Until when? Until September. From the director of Return of the Jedi. So it must be exciting, right? That's how I would have. I think the poster for this should have said from the director of Return of the Jedi and the star of Raiders of the Lost Ark, because everybody would have been disappointed. Every single person. Let me see if I can synopsize this plot in the least amount of words possible. Karen Allen stuck in Paris with handsome man. Handsome married man. 
I liked a lot of this movie, mostly Karen Allen, uh, up until the very ending. And boy, do I not like the very ending, which I'm not going to spoil, but I don't like it. A, I think he's a zero. I think he's awful. I think he's a terrible lead, both as a character and as a performance. I think he's terribly written. And I think this guy is disastrously miscast. I think he has zero on-screen charisma. I, I have trouble with these movies where we're supposed to root for the guy who's cheating. I could pull for a character who is contemplating adultery, but that can't be like his defining trait. Yeah, it's all in how you write it. They don't address it at all. He's just a guy who meets her and then starts sleeping with her. And the first like third of this film, she's determined not to be involved with anybody. I kept waiting for the reveal, like, I came to Europe because I have cancer and I just want to see Europe, and I don't want to be connected. There's nothing. There's literally nothing driving this character other than she got off the plane at the wrong time and ended up in the wrong place, and that's not interesting. She's supposed to be a chaperone for a large school trip that's gone all over the world, and at first she's real frazzled on how to get back with the school trip, and then she doesn't really care. Like, yeah. I think maybe you should quit. I don't know. She doesn't ever, that's like not really an issue anymore. And just as a spotlight for her, I enjoyed watching it, even though a dry, cliched romance is not really my genre of choice. I would recommend it for her performance alone. That is very much the definition of what we look for in movie stars is people that you'll watch do almost anything just because you're interested in them. And I agree, Karen Allen deserves so much better than she got across the course of her entire career, pretty much. But the script doesn't work. There's nothing. She's not playing a character. There's nothing driving this character. There's nothing interesting about this character. And I think the real shame of it is there comes a point where the fumes of just watching her runs out and you realize, oh, my God, I've still got like 45 minutes of this fucking thing left. And it really doesn't do anything. It's a tough, tough sit. Um, All right. Here's a film that Karen Allen turned down. The Warrior and the Sorceress. Journey now to an age undreamed of. An age of mystery and magic. Of swords and sorcery. The Warrior and the Sorceress on a planet lit by twin suns. Evil warlords battle to control the fate of an entire dynasty. In the greatest of all adventures, the warrior and the sorceress, their sacred bond cannot be broken. This is another of these sort of reasons that we didn't think fantasy worked in the 80s because this is what fantasy was like this is nine times out of ten if you saw a fantasy poster this is what was waiting for you in the theater how many posters do you have in which a totally ripped and cut david carradine uh stands aloft a gorgeous sorceress with four breasts. Well, I assume that this movie, just looking at the poster, is about how David Carradine's head gets grafted onto someone's body, because that's not him. What is funny is how much he is clearly just riffing off the kung fu persona. Carradine rode that kung fu persona as far as anybody could, man. It is a sword and sorcery Yo Jimbo riff. He's playing two sides against each other and exactly. you see every beat before it's coming and they're fighting over a well, I believe. Boy, it just keeps going and going and going. Maria Sokas plays the sorceress and she does sorcery. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so while my parents were in town, I did not watch a lot of these movies because they wanted to spend time. They wanted to hang out. And if I put something on, they would sit in the room and watch it with me. And I learned this, unfortunately, the morning I tried to watch The Evil That Men Do. When the system of justice doesn't work, Bronson does. When the courts can't do what they must, Bronson will. In the name of revenge, there is just one name. Bronson, fighting all the evil that men do. It's very base, simplistic, but it's at least a switch from his street killings. Drew, where is Charles Bronson killing people if not the streets of a large city? Uh, Central America this time. The hook, at the very beginning, we see this guy giving a lecture. He's a torturer for hire for governments, and he is the best at what he does, and that means that he's horrible and brutal and awful. We see him kill somebody in the opening scene that somebody's family then goes and tracks down an assassin who they want to take him out. And that's the movie. That's Bronson. That's the rest of the film. I sat through so much of this thing just looking at my watch. Something happened. Something. Anything happened. Please. I don't get these B-movies where it's like, you know that you're making a certain kind of junk. Just make it. It's barely an action film. Like, J. Lee Thompson, the longer he did this stuff with Bronson, the more he started kind of phoning it in. And I'm really happy. This is the last J. Lee Thompson, Charles Bronson film we're going to have to cover because this feels like they had run out of gas completely. By the time they get Bronson back to his island at the end, it's like, please don't ever bring him out of retirement again. Let that assassin go back to his island. Just stop. At the end, it turns out that the evil that men do is make shitty movies. There's this movie, Drew. It's uh, called Heartbreakers. Came out in 1984. Stars Peter Coyote and Nick Mancuso as a pair of dickheads who treat everyone, especially women, like filth. I hated this fucking movie. It takes place almost entirely in like aerobics clubs. <laughs> and, and they're just like two guys leering at women through a glass window. And that's charming. Like the fact that they're just looking at women like a dog would look at a, sli- a side of meat. Like, and it's supposed to be... Oh, those guys, they're such scoundrels. Uh, I wanted to piss on my television while I was watching Heartbreakers. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, I, I had never seen this film. Uh, this is a movie that um, I know has a bit of a cult following. And Bobby Roth is one of those guys that a lot of people have a big question mark around, like, ooh, what happened to him? I am not as uh, starkly negative as you, but I also don't think this movie glorifies them. Robert Blue, the, the artist that this is based on, I think is it's interesting seeing a film about this guy that does not in any way let him off the hook for being a real user piece of shit. I think the movie pokes a giant hole in both of them. They're both babies. They're both terrible people. And neither one of them knows how to truly connect to anybody, which is why they hold on to each other, because they are both so fucking broken and empty. I think Bobby Roth has a healthy distaste for them. 
I don't think the movie's got a happy ending at all. I think by the end of this movie, they're both going to be stuck with one another, and that sounds like hell to me. Neither one of them is going to get a woman or get any relationship or get a life of substance. He got some money out of trashy people making trash, and it's not going to make him any happier than he was the day before. I think you and I are responding to very much the same things in the movie. I don't think it glorifies anything. I think the movie ultimately is a portrait of an empty, disgusting corner of culture populated by awful people. You saw some uh, some depth in this movie that I didn't, and I appreciate that. Okay. But I, I did appreciate Max Gale Borton, an early example of a bald man with a mullet. Quite good in the movie, and and yeah. I will say the best performance in the movie, without question, is Catherine Harold uh, as Sid, She's one of great. the uh, one She's of the two great. guys, uh, long suffering uh, girlfriend who finally ups and leaves him. And she See, has I, a scene early in the movie where they bicker and argue back and forth that's better than anything else in the movie. And she's right. Everything she says to him is right. And she leaves for the right reasons. And later, when she runs at him at the gallery at the end, and he's having his show in his moment of triumph, and he says, I wish you would have waited for me. The look she gives him is, no, dumb fuck. That's not my job. I'm not your mommy. I'm not here to take care of you. That's not any woman's job. No, I wasn't going to wait for you. And you're not grown up yet. I still think he doesn't get it at the end. So, okay, so now here's my question. Because I had that reaction that you had to Heartbreakers to Windy City. And I'm curious what you thought of this one. Doris Lamb. Ah, I got a script. Uh, I, I happen to read scripts, so okay. You ever see The Big Chill? I did see The Big Chill. Well, this also has a large ensemble cast of people. Buy my script. Perfect. Get me a poster. At least this held my interest slightly more than Heartbreakers did. That's that's what I'll say. This took me eight tries to watch. Shut up. This movie's 90 minutes. I know. I watched it in about six minute chunks because John Shea, something about him, the second he shows up in this movie, I checked out. Not, I'm not a big fan of movies about writers and people in Hollywood. And I don't, I'm not much for them. And I, and I think a lot of it is because they just rub me the wrong way. It's like doctors watching the hospital stuff. Whenever it's a writer narrating in a way, it's like, I'm a writer and this is my life. Stars Kate Capshaw, Josh Mostel, John Shea. Also, the movie does have a good performance by a young Jeffrey DeMunn. I'll give him that. I'll give that too. The only film, I believe, written and dire- uh, directed by... Armian Bernstein, who went on to become one of the most prolific producers maybe ever? No, he did Cross My Heart, which we'll also talk about this decade. This just kind of struck me as big chill in half. It's weird. Sometimes you turn a movie on and like eight minutes in, you just want to kill everybody in the film with a shovel. I'm a writer. These are my friends. This is what led to my artwork. This is my art and where it came from. I don't care. Hey, you ready for a big double feature of farm movies? Because Hollywood sure was. Let's go to the country. Jessica Lang is Jewel Ivy. This is our land. You can't just pull in here like God Almighty. Sam Shepard is Gil Ivy. You can't look on this thing short term. Farming is a business. You college boys with your numbers, that's who made it a business. Your office authorized those purchases. Country is the story of a family today willing to fight the government to hold on to everything they love. This feels like Jessica Lang saw Silkwood and said, I want something where, you know, I save the day, where I'm the central character who saves the farm, saves the family. 
boy, she's great in this. I'm not totally in love with the script or the film, but I am in love with the two of them as actors together. Just watching them navigate the tough spots in a marriage and watching the arguments and watching how they unfold. And there's one scene in the movie where shit finally goes truly haywire for Sam Shepard, where all the frustration and the anger boils out. And I loved it at the beginning of that scene. He was making me laugh. Um, And it goes zero to 60. But I think Shepard is terrific in the film and watching him navigate the world as the rugs being pulled out from under him. And he's realizing that the deal is not what they said the deal was, is heartbreaking. This is what a lot of American farmers were going through in the mid 80s. And I think Hollywood was trying to find a way to get to that. So that's why we got all these movies in one year. Hollywood does love a hot button issue, but there's something to be said for tackling that issue with some sincerity. Country is a, uh, you know, fairly standard. You know where it's going, but it's really well shot and it's very well performed. Richard Pierce as a uh, director, I think, is a little meat and potatoes. I don't think there's much spin on his fastball, but he's solid. And more than anything, he makes space for the cast here. And the cast is very, very good. Wilford Brimley, by this point, had gotten to that place where no matter what you put him in, he was going to give you 10 minutes of honesty. Man, seeing him in these smaller, earthier roles where he gets to be rascally or vulgar or pissy, he's great. One of the weirdest things about this movie, check out that logo on the front of this thing, man. That is the weirdest version of the Touchstone logo that you're ever going to see. It's (laughs) an odd one. Yep, and uh, then in a very similar film. In a time of hardship, she found strength. I'm not selling the land, and I'm not giving my children over to anyone else to raise. In a time of crisis, she found courage. If we lose this place, I'm going to lose what's left in my family. I'm not going to let that happen. Sally Field is a woman fighting for her children, for her land, for the greatest dream there is, the future. Places in the heart. Rated PG. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Sally Field is a widow in the 1930s Dust Bowl uh, who is having trouble keeping her farm afloat until she gets some help from a local man played by Danny Glover and a uh, blind 'er ne'er-do-well played by John Malkovich. The weirdest thing about this film is the movie you just described is the movie. Then there's this other movie about two couples who are all screwing each other, who sort of know they're all screwing each other, but sort of don't, and then it all blows up. That has zero to do with Sally Field and her farm. It literally feels like someone is flipping the channel to a different movie. They could not be any weirder set next to each other. But they're both well acted. They're both solid. It feels like the movie is missing a key scene at the end where those plots dovetail and they never do. I think when people think of places in the heart, they think of the farm stuff. That's the movie that people remember. That's what Sally Field won the Oscar for. That's what got it made at that point. It almost feels like there's a third movie, too. The husband is killed. He's a policeman and he's killed by a young black man. Then the movie occasionally cuts back to what's going on in the black community. But there's no commentary on it. The other characters are never aware of it. I think the movie should have lost all the adultery stuff, lost the entire Ed Harris subplot, and then expanded the idea that there is real resentment in the town that the person who helps get Sally Field back on track is this indigent worker played by Danny Glover. And the fact that he's a black man and he outsmarts the system, he knows these are the rules. If you do this, you can win. You can keep your farm. And nobody else will tell her that. Every other guy in town wants her to fail. They all want her to not have that farm anymore. So he's the only person that's willing to speak up. Uh, Drew, uh, I'll save this for our wrap-up episode. I'm 
unpleasantly surprised to be reminded that this won Best Screenplay. That is the weirdest nomination this film could get. Whatever you want to say about the movie, whatever merits you want to say the film has, uh, nominating its screenplay is strange enough, uh, but actually giving the win, that's that's a hell of a call for a year. This month, there is a lot of stuff that felt like it was targeted to sort of middle American audiences. And I think one of the films that was aiming squarely at that audience was our next movie. And I want to tell a little story about a guy and how he reacted when he saw The Bear. He loved a challenge. I have all They call you The Bear. He demanded the best. Well, let's get back out there and do it one more time. Come on. He was a leader. An inspiration. If you won't be beaten, you can't be beaten. And that'll work for you for the rest of your life. He was a hero. Here comes the Crimson Tide of Alabama. The Bear. Rated PG. Now showing at a theater near you. Check local newspapers. We should be clear, this is not the Jean-Jacques Hainaut nature adventure film about a bear. Yes, because that would be... And also, it is not about the, the, the bear, the Kevin Reynolds film, about a tank. No, that's the beast. Oh, you're right. Don't cut that, Bobby. I want people to know I'm human. <laughs> um, we had a very close friend of my dad's who was the biggest University of Alabama fan there was. He had gone there, and his son had gone there, and everything in his house was decorated in University of Alabama colors. And there was no more holy figure in that house than Coach Paul Bear Bryant. When this movie came out, that guy was so excited that he rented a theater. Paid for all the seats. Whoa, 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 whoa. Filled it with his friends and family. We saw the movie, and the movie broke his heart so badly that not only did he never talk about this film again, he didn't see another movie for two and a half years. Dude, you know some mentally unsettled people. Um, so now having said that, let's remove the uber fandom of Paul Bear Bryant from the equation. Is this any good as a movie? And the answer is, good God, no. It's a terrible movie. Gary Busey is Paul Bear Bryant. And we learn in the opening moments of the movie that he got the name from a wrestling match with a bear that he did for money. Man, it doesn't get any better than that as it goes. The film itself is currently completely unavailable commercially, except for one place. There is a dude who must have been a giant fan of this movie who bought the rights to it from 20th Century Fox and now if you want to buy the film, you have to go to his website and he will send you a DVD he burned off of his VHS copy, complete with like 30 seconds of Black Leader at the beginning. And he literally owns the legal rights to the movie now. It's a great story. I, I, I didn't even know that was feasible. The film has this real sort of then this happened, then this happened, then this happened quality. Oh, you mean uh, it's episodic? What blows my mind, Richard C. Serafian, the director of this film, this is the same director who made Vanishing Point, one of the truly great car chase action existential thrillers. He must add a thing for Gary Busey, though, because we're going to be back in a couple of years with Eye of the Tiger in this guy. And uh, man, Gary Busey is Buck Matthews. I'm not looking forward to it based on the bear. Now we're going to move into one of my favorite comedies of the year, Steve Martin. Lily Tomlin. Roger Cobb was a rising young lawyer whose first big case. Guess what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to come back from the dead. Oh. Was a basket case. Ah, good plan. They put her soul in a bowl. But things got out of control. 
it worked. I want you out of me by 3.15. Now, where's the swabby? Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin in All of Me. What a wonderful movie. There is the physical comedy of Steve Martin, which we all know he was an amazing physical comedian. And I don't have a lot of patience for physical comedy if you're not good at it, okay? The premise is that a lawyer is partially possessed by the spirit of a snooty, old, rich, dead woman, played by Lily Tomlin. He can control half of his body, and when she wants to, she controls the other half. I don't know why All of Me is not discussed a lot more. It ranks among Steve Martin's best performances. It is a sweet, fast-paced, funny movie. Great performance by Victoria Tennant. Great performance by Richard Libertini. Part of it is that it is a comedy duet in terms of you have two very strong presences, but I think Steve Martin's carrying more of the load because he has to find a way to physically give half his body to Lily Tomlin, then do that physical work. And just watching him walk across a room is terrific in this movie. The bit on the sidewalk where her side is reaching for the tree or he's reaching for the tree and she's trying to go back in or one or the other. And yep. he is, looks like he's pulling his body in half. Just watching him walk like half of his body does a sway and the other half does a straight step. And it's just, it's crazy. It's a terrific physical performance. This is again, a collaboration with Carl Reiner. I think uh, Carl Reiner and Steve Martin bring out the absolute best in one another. They're one of my favorite collaborations in film. I, I love Carl Reiner and Steve Martin. And when they are together, it is special. I think Richard Libertini is terrific here as the mystic who sort of made the whole thing. Libertini plays these eccentrics. And it's whether it's this or the in-laws, even when he's doing another culture, there's just something wonderful and, and sweet and daffy about Libertini. There's nothing mean about the characters he plays. Victoria Tennant, who plays the um, the young woman who was supposed to have Lily Tomlin's soul put into her body, she's pretty great. And it's easy to see why Martin not only was attracted to her in his real life, but also then wanted to continue to work with her and found other ways to write for her. And I think it's a shame we're not going to get to do L.A. Story. It's a wonderful collaboration between the two of them. Um, all right. So our next film is one that I have only known by poster and title. And now having seen it, I would describe it as Bentley Little's The Earthquake. And I kind of dig it. It's called Impulse. Imagine what would happen if every desire, every urge, every passion, locked deep inside all of us, suddenly exploded. I would have called it sleeping pill. <laughs> Clever film critic rejoinder. Anyway, listen, it's got some people in it I adore, i.e. Tim Madison, Meg Tilly, the great old Hume Cronin, and a very young Bill Paxton. An interesting setup about a small town acting weird and dull. But then the movie gets weird and dull, and it almost falls asleep like a toddler in the back of an SUV. Oh, I, I liked it more than that. I thought it had a slow fuse on it, but not a inactive fuse. There's always something going on. There's always stuff at the edge of frame. There's an earthquake in town, and outside of town, a bunker of some sort breaks open and leaks something into the, the ground. Little by little, this town starts to lose control of themselves. And I like a lot of the scenes where when somebody starts to get sweaty, you know things are about to go bad. So I think there's some good performance work in it. 
I don't think it all totally connects at the end, but I like that it's kind of got a downer ending, that it doesn't try to fix everything at the end. There's no magic pill to put everybody right again. And it's definitely born out of that weird political paranoia of the government is trying to fucking kill us all that was so big in the late 70s, early 80s. But Graham Baker, the director, went on to Alien Nation, I think, did a decent job building the small town and making it creepy. I just think the gears kind of slow down and it just doesn't seem like they knew how to end it. Uh, But I wouldn't call it bad. I'm glad you liked it more than I did. And if you like the cast or the premise, check out Impulse. It was nice to see a Bill Paxton performance I'd never seen. That was that was the added bonus here. It is nice in 1984 to see Bill Paxton being peppered around in things like eight lines in Streets of Fire, seven lines in this. And it's just or mortuary, you know, keep popping up in things and uh, working his ass off. And then, you know, going back to Jim Cameron and then, you know, hit the big time. Fucking A. And now we're going to move on to a really interesting movie that was marketed by Universal as a semi sequel to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Let us discuss the highly disappointing The Wildlife. If you don't get out of here right now, I'm going to scream. You won't scream. I'll scream. You won't scream. It's a fast life. Are you a virgin? It's casual. It's a low life. I love you! It's casual. It's a high life. It's casual. It's a wildlife. From the creators of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Wildlife, rated R. Starts Friday at select theaters. Check newspapers for locations. The version that we saw was the original theatrical version. There is a home video cut that is largely just about music rights, where they've lost some of the original music, which, considering this was a film written by Cameron Crowe, you can imagine was actually kind of central to what they were doing. So, Written by Cameron Crowe and directed by non-director Art Linson, who is, again, a highly prolific producer and very, very talented producer, directed a handful of films in his career. Not well. This is one. This movie features what might be the only Eddie Van Halen score ever, and yep. it is so terrible. Yeah. It's so terrible, I wanted to find a guitar and smash it out of spite. Eric Stoltz moves into a singles apartment because he's young, and it thinks life is going to be awesome and sex-filled, but instead it's just awkward and sweaty, just like high school. And it's the last week before the next year of high school begins, which they set up at the beginning and then don't seem to remember is the premise of the film until the last like five minutes of the film. You know whose favorite movie this probably is? Who? Matthew McConaughey in Dazed and Confused. (laughs) (laughs) The guy who like a year after high school is debating whether he wants to go back to the high school party. In some ways, it feels like there are leftover notes that he had from his time. uh, Cameron Crowe. Scenes more like. But like the kid who's obsessed with Vietnam and the Vietnam War to the point where they go and they bug some poor veteran to tell them stories. That's Elon Mitchell Smith, by the way. It's a good performance and a really weird, not interesting, not likable character. But that's what I'm saying is it feels like that was somebody he observed. And he went, OK, I got to put that in the movie. But there's no point. It doesn't go anywhere. I had that kid who lived next door to me who introduced me to butterfly knives and throwing stars. These doesn't sure. need a movie made about him. I know, but that's what it feels like. I'm just, I'm not saying that it's good. I'm just saying that's what it feels like is that that's what he had was just at the end of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. What else do you have? Well, I don't know. I'm not really a screenwriter yet. And Randy Quaid as the Vietnam vet gets one scene. It's very ugly. I don't know what the point was supposed to be other than like shock value humor. Well, I don't even think that's a joke. I think it's meant to show how sad this is and how they're treating him like it's cool that he went. And no, he's just this broken dude who lives in an apartment. So then your interpretation is that we're supposed to hate Elon Mitchell Smith character. Well, that it's really shitty. He thinks it's cool and glamorous and Vietnam was awesome. And clearly 
No, that's not at all what the experience was. But he, he needed to get beat up. He was a fucking pretentious little fuck. His older brother is Bill, played by Eric Stoltz. Bill used to date Anita, Leia Thompson, who gives a great performance, even though 90% of the movie, she's stuck behind a counter at a donut shop. Yeah. And she just reminds me of like girls I knew who were better after they broke up with me. The one thing that I will say that I think Cameron Crowe got right in this, that he also got right in Fast Times, just as a writer, is the idea that sexual politics for young women suck way worse than they do for young men. The deal she has with that older cop guy is no good for her at all and is only good for him. And I think Crowe realizes that young women in particular are preyed on and they are frequently victimized and that even in, quote, relationships, the power is so fucked up and imbalanced that there's no good for them. Another fantastic performance by an actress we talked about before, Jenny Wright. She's the highlight of the movie for me. She's way more interesting than the character she saddled with, which is Chris Penn doing the lunk-headed meathead version of what his brother did in Fast Times. And whereas Spicoli, I find charming and somewhat childlike, this guy, I wanted to see fall into a belt sander. It's casual. Hey, you can't leave work early. It's casual. No and good. I do think that he does what he was asked to do in this movie. Just like in Footloose, it's not much on the page. But here's the thing. Tom Drake is your main character in this movie, whereas Spicoli was in like five good scenes as Garnish. And then you got uh, Rick Moranis as a, a weirdo with weird hair that changes every scene. It feels like he shot this in Streets of Fire on the same day. And I do like that the cop is played by Sleazebag Ellis from Die Hard. Overall, I think the wildlife feels like Cameron Crowe trying to learn how to become a screenwriter on the job. Like, okay, I told a real story that I actually live. Now, how do I make one up? Well, not like this. Um, let's move on to our next movie, which I'm already angry about, and we haven't even started talking about it yet. I want to divorce my parents. How are we going to turn into these people? Well, I don't know how it happens. Maybe it's something in the Perrier water. Ryan O'Neill, Shelley Long, and Drew Barrymore. We have reconcilable irreconcilable differences if you had hbo in the 80s this is a cult film to you if you did not have hbo in the 80s you may never have even heard of it. having simply seen something over and over should not qualify it for cult status it should be good or worthwhile or have something to contribute this is garbage i believe that it was a hot topic in the newspapers that uh in theory a child could now divorce their parents topical enough to make a movie about it so you get the hottest young actor, which is Drew Barrymore, and in this movie, she really feels like she's reading off cue cards. And in Firestarter, which is not a good film, she feels mostly very natural. In this, she does not. It's basically about her in court trying to divorce her rotten parents, as played by Shelley Long and Ryan O'Neill. And then we get to a series of flashbacks that have almost nothing to do with the child. Like, we get like a 25-minute flashback of how the parents first met it's a romantic comedy, so let's have five big flashbacks and then go back to the court and wrap it all up. I think it's very banal, very simplistic, a few chuckles. I don't like it. Uh, we're rich and our lives are great, but we're not happy. Fuck you. Fuck both the characters in this movie aggressively. This is an unpleasant experience from beginning to end, and it is made doubly unpleasant by the idea that Charles Shire and Nancy Myers, a married writing-directing couple, 
took the actual life of Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt, which melted down during the production of their movies because he ended up sleeping with Sybil Shepard and wanted to do a movie about that, that they then grafted onto this cutesy idea about a little girl divorcing her parents. Okay, two different films. You want to do the movie about the little girl divorcing her parents? Great, but she should be a character in the film, not a thing that appears four times. What went down between Bogdanovich and Polly Platt and Sybil Shepard it's really hard to think, okay, let's make a sitcom shitty, cutesy movie about that situation. It's all gross, and these people are all so broken in their values and their, their behavior. And look, honestly, neither of these people is capable of being a parent. This child is not a child that anybody would recognize as a real human being. It is written as if aliens were trying to write Kramer versus Kramer, having only vaguely heard of what divorce or human beings are. I don't like any part of this movie, and it infuriates me that they think this is a portrait of Hollywood that would do anything other than lead us to set up guillotines outside the Beverly Hills Hilton. It's awful. Some small benefits. There is a a decent performance in here by Sharon Stone, of all people. Shelley Long pitches it somewhere between like fragile and freaky and just cartoonish. That's the other thing is, is knowing that this is based on Polly Platt. It infuriates me. Polly Platt is a genius, and she is part of the reason that Bogdanovich's early movies are great. She is a truly magnificent creative force, and to portray her this way, and I know they changed the name, but it is what they're doing. It feels like they've chosen the side, which is Bogdanovich was the great guy. She was a basket case. She's a little crazy. I know you can't, but pretend for just a second you know nothing about Bogdanovich, Platt. Well, then it just treats her as a shrill, shitty woman, and I'm not a fan of that character to begin with. Hey, you know what movie I did like? What's that? A soldier story. Captain Richard Davenport. I'm conducting an inquiry into the events surrounding the death of Sergeant Waters. Alone. You can't possibly get at the truth. Far from home, far from justice. Keep turning this thing over. You're bound to have an explosion. He has three days to learn the truth. Your orders instruct you to cooperate. And the truth is a story you won't forget. A soldier story rated PG. This is a limited release that uh, started to platform in September and then towards the end of the year went wider, uh, adapted from the Pulitzer Prize winning play. And it is a beautifully mounted production by Norman Jewison. Every single role in this movie is cast perfectly. You want to see what young black Hollywood had to offer in 1984? They're probably here and they're probably great. One of Norman Jewison's best films, and not often one of his most discussed. It's about a black officer who is investigating a murder. Uh, it's a World War II period piece. Howard E. Rollins Jr., it, Art Evans, Adolf Caesar, David Allen Greer, uh, Robert Townsend, Denzel, but oh, and Drew's favorite, Wings Hauser. And that Denzel Washington performed Trey Wilson in this movie. Oh, Trey Wilson, most people will know from, as the gentleman who said the immortal line, I don't know. Uh, H.R. Huff Hines uh, in Raising Arizona. (laughs) It is just beautifully cast. And Adolf Caesar as the sergeant who was killed, whose murder sets this entire thing off. It's one of those perfect moments where they found that guy. They cast that guy and you see him and 10 minutes into his performance. I'm like, I want 5,000 other Adolf Caesar movies. I love this guy. He's awesome. Adolf Caesar has to be one of the top five drill sergeant movie drill sergeants ever. Well, and it's because it's the added layer of he's a black drill sergeant and knows just how far up in the ranks black men are allowed to go. He knows what it means that he's a sergeant. He's very aware of 
the way people look at him and the way people look at his men. And so the movie is an exploration of racial tension, but it's racial tension within the ranks of this black troop in World War II and the way they look at themselves and each other and the way they look at how they are thought of and how they need to behave. And it's a terrific piece of writing. And every character brings something to the table. Every character is smartly observed and has something to say. Nobody is what they seem at the very beginning of the movie, which I think is very well done. I would like to throw a shout out to a gentleman who may be anonymous because his name is John Hancock. Phenomenal character actor. You know him from everything. I knew him uh, very well at Dave's video in the, uh, the early 90s. And he was one of those guys who every time he came in, he was always full of great stories, and he was one of the most approachable, delightful people. What's great about it is it's lean. It doesn't waste any time. It knows what it's doing. And I think what Howard E. Rollins does in the lead role, it's a really interesting straight line from Mr. Tibbs, played by Potier for Jewison, to this character. They are under very different pressures, but they are each guys who are very brittle, who have to handle an investigation while there is something else eating at them. I think for Jewison to have picked Rollins, it is a definite sort of nod. Hey, man, I found Potier for that movie. I think you're that guy for this generation. And I think Rollins for a little while looked like he was going to be one of those giant actors who everybody used. I think Denzel ultimately is the guy out of this movie that had that giant, insane, oh my God career. I enjoyed everything about this revisit. And this is one that, uh, you know, I had not seen in many, many years. This one I had already seen and I had no doubt that it would hold up. But I, I like you, I enjoyed it just like watching a mystery thriller uh, beyond even the important, uh, you know, sociopolitical subtext and just being able to see a movie with a ton of black actors in it. The real trick, and one of the things Jewison did so well, is the juggling of social context, but he told entertaining stories first, and I think that is a skill that cannot be overvalued. Do you know who else was good at it? Who? King of Segways, go! John Sayles, in a little movie called The Brother from Another Planet. It's Mars on the Hudson. It's Cheers Goes to Harlem. Get you something to drink, brother. It's the brother from another planet. Man is a fugitive from a chain gang. He's got radar for a mind, removable eyes, and a lovable smile. It's the box office blast guaranteed to open your eyes. The brother from another planet. There's so many little things about this movie that I love. You know, when you're making a movie for less than $500,000 and you're doing a movie about an alien on the run and it's set all over New York City and you have bounty hunters chasing him and you have action scenes and you have some special effects, you've got to be brilliant. You can't just come to the table and, and hope you'll figure it out or make it all work. You've got to really think about everything. And one of the real lessons of this movie and one of the reasons to be shown to young filmmakers is there's so many brilliant problem-solving moments that cost nothing that are simply about performance or about a sound or one of my favorite things that he does is that he, when he touches things, he can soak up sounds. He can hear and feel what has happened in a place. And when he first appears, he splashes down off Ellis Island and he goes into the Ellis Island welcome station, the old one, the historical one that's not used anymore, and spends the night there. And there's a moment where he's sitting on a bench and he's touching walls and he's hearing all the people who ever came through Ellis Island and emigrated. It's a beautiful moment. 
but it's because he makes it reactive. It's all about Morton feeling it, not about somebody telling him or about somebody spelling it out, but it's just the feeling of it that I think he gets so well. And God, Joe Morton gives a silent movie star performance here. He is great. It's all in his eyes. Yeah, I think um, David Strathairn and John Sayles as the two aliens chasing him are a lot of fun to watch, and they play it very straight-faced, and they are... Sales that we can thank? For Strathairn, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Strathairn was one of his uh, recurring players in his early work. Absolutely heartbreaking in Eight Men Out. Strathairn is amazing in City of Hope. Oh, my God. If you're an up-and-coming or now-climbing director and you have a guy like David Strathairn who says, I'll always come to set for you, you use him every freaking time. One of the reasons that I think sales is different than a lot of indie filmmakers at that time is because as a novelist, he was very aware of the power of detail. Sales had been given a MacArthur Genius Grant, a lot of which went directly into this movie. Watch this movie twice. Once to mainly just enjoy it, and then once to see how efficient, how many corners he cut to get this thing made. You know, this movie makes the most of every single nickel. So we're going to move on now. We're in the home stretch here. And this next film, Drew, let's move to Ken Russell and Kathleen Turner and Anthony Perkins rolling around in smutty alleyways and fucking and doing heroin. It's Ken Russell's Crimes of Passion. And I need a shower now. There are no secrets in the dark. There is no act that cannot be committed. In Women in Love, he crossed forbidden boundaries. In altered states, he explored the unknown powers of the mind. Now he explores the most provocative power of all. The star of Body Heat and Romancing the Stone, Kathleen Turner. Anthony Perkins creating an unforgettable role of menacing power. And introducing... John Laughlin. Never before have two adults consented to so much. Crimes of Passion, the most talked about movie of the year. Man, I will give it up for Kathleen Turner, who at this point in her career was willing to just jump in with both feet with Ken Russell, and she's basically doing a remake of Angel in a way. Now, you know, this is a trope that a lot of actors get sucked into. I'm going to show you what the seamy underside of sex work is really like. And unfortunately, part of that is also this moralistic thing that we still have where all sex work is bad. So we have to make sure that the films are bummers and gross. I hate the stigma that is automatically placed on them. Crimes of Passion is a perfect example of the the absolute craziest, sleaziest outer edge of that, where the movie is, uh, by day I am a fashion designer, and by night I am a wild, wanton whore who sleeps with everything. Kathleen Turner, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. That's my Kathleen Turner impression in 1984. Is Ken Russell a genius, or no. is he a perv with a camera? He's a perv with a camera. He wallows. He is a wallower. And I feel I feel bad for like Anthony Perkins, who Anthony Perkins will always give you a thousand percent. He's hung out to dry in this. He's not There's, given any nuance, any subtlety. Right. He is a pervy, sweaty, sleazy guy who, who acts like Ratso Rizzo. Ken Russell has no interest in making this character out to be anything more than like psycho creature. Like, there is nothing about this that I, I don't think there's any dramatic tension to this movie. The entire thing is he's going to at some point cure her and she's going to continue to sleep with anybody she can. And then there's this 
the guy who she begins to have a real relationship with after the first time they sleep together because he has a terrible home life with Annie Potts. That whole storyline is the biggest load of shit. I don't buy any of it. So I would have rather just stayed in the crazy, sleazy, stupid Ken Russell movie and not tried to have this domestic drama unfold next to it because that almost intolerable. I still had a a good time discovering a lot of Ken Russell's films throughout the 80s and 90s. This was one that I did not like. It does have an interesting historical footnote in that I vaguely remember there being two different VHS versions, an unrated and an R-rated. One was red and one was blue. You are correct. Yeah, and that was not something you saw very frequently. Uh, And even then, it would be with, like, you know, an art house type movie. Talk about disappointing. If you rented this to try and crank one out, this is an awfully grotesque movie. It's not in any way meant to be erotic. It is pretty much in every scene the opposite of. What do you mean by crank it out? Uh, You know, uh, take notes and write about it. Yeah. That's all. Speaking of cranking something out, Drew, let us go to our final film of this episode, a film that won Best Picture and, in my estimation, may have deserved it. Amadeus. The man. The music. The magic. The masterpiece. Amadeus. There may be no better film we covered this year. I just love that the film won Best Picture, and we will find a few films this year that we absolutely love, but neither of us would say Amadeus didn't deserve to win Best Picture. No, it's, it's one of those cases where, no, you may have gotten it exactly right that year. What I always forget until I go back and watch it, and I just watched it last night. I saved this as my, this was my Christmas Day movie. I forget how wildly entertaining it is. Just scene to scene, line to line, pretty much always entertaining. Back in the day, let's say 84 and before, very little of what I watched could be described as sincere, touching, emotional, culturally significant drama. I was into horror, sci-fi, action, comedy, animation. That was pretty much it. Occasionally, I'd watch a drama if an actor or actress that I adore was in it. One day in 1986 or 7, I don't remember why or even how, but I saw Amadeus and Dangerous Liaisons in the same weekend. And I felt like my brain grew 12 sizes like the Grinch's heart does. And Amadeus and Dangerous Liaisons were hugely influential on me because that was the weekend I realized, hey, you like drama, you like art house, you like fancy movies too. Don't be intimidated by these Oscar-type movies. You can appreciate them as much as anyone can. And that's part of why I love Amadeus so much. The Peter Schaefer script for this is one of my favorite screenplays of all time. And it is largely because of listening to Salieri work through how his arc came to play out. And it's the evolution of his feelings for Mozart and the evolutions of his feelings for God. And the the realization that God is not ever going to give him that moment where he makes something that will live forever. There's a beautiful moment right before Mozart enters the film where Salieri gets wistful. He's talking about his life and he says, I liked my life. I liked me. It's the last moment in the movie where Salieri smiles or is comfortable with who he was because then he had this other thing to compare himself to and it began to just eat him and destroy him and recognizing greatness and hating yourself because you can't create it. Why would you instill this desire in me, but not the ability? Or and, that, awful, that feeling that we all have where someone we hate 
is like legitimately talented and we can't deny it. Not just talented. Mozart is, as he puts it, he closes his eyes as he reads his music and he realizes this is the voice of God by dictation, that it is not talent. Talent is one thing. This is divinity. This is absolute perfection. It is what Salieri wishes everything he wrote sounded like. That's the cancer that eats at him over the course of this film. And F. Murray Abraham's performance is genius. The the makeup work on him is genius. And the idea that he's able to perform through it and be so nuanced and so wonderful and so rich, that's one level of performance. But then the younger him is so great. You still can see his motivation. You can still kind of empathize with wow, oh, yeah. how he got here because we all have those feelings of envy. I want to be a success. You know what else is brilliant, Drew? How many biopics do you know where the biography character is not the main character? Mozart oh, is all, not yeah. the main, Like you're telling the story through his rival. He is this force that keeps showing up and working on Salieri's life. <laughs> I can't imagine anyone but Hulse. I know that there are people who love the Broadway production, who say that Tim Curry was the Mozart of all Mozarts. Yeah, we, I wanted to talk about that. Tim Curry played this on stage. Yeah. And at this point, Tim Curry was already a well-established and well-regarded, yeah. and without taking anything away from Tom Hulse's, I think, believe it or not, underrated performance, why did Tim Curry not get this job? I think Foreman was looking for his take on it, and... You know, Meg Tilly was supposed to be Constance Mozart and broke her leg right before the the shoot began and had to drop out for Barrage to end up playing the part. I can imagine how great Meg Tilly would have been in this role, but Barrage is terrific. Barrage is really good in this role. There's so many people that I, I think are perfectly cast, and yet I know theater snobs who really don't like this movie because of a theater production they saw with Ian McKellen or with Tim Curry or with all due respect to theater fans and theater actors. This is a different medium. And these performances are amazing. There are terrific performances all the way through this, but it's more than anything for me, it's Milos Forman. There is a thing about period films that I always find distancing. One of the reasons that I find Amadeus such a miracle is because Amadeus feels like it is alive. This is a world that I actually believe these people live in. I actually buy it. And there is an earthiness to it and a reality to it that suddenly grounds me in this period and makes me feel like this is how it felt. And part of that is the modern language and part of it is having American actors. And I get it. I get the tricks that Foreman did, but it works and it pulls me in in a way that many period films don't. Growing up, we all had our Spielbergs and our Joe Dantes, but for some reason, Foreman's name was one that stuck in my head because I saw Cuckoo's Nest at an early age. And then a few years later, my sister was obsessed with the movie Hair. Then I saw Amadeus, boom, Miller Foreman, fan. Uh, the three-hour version that exists now is the full Peter Schaefer script restored, and it's not a case of, you know, sort of a weird Frankenstein director's cut. It literally was. They were just scared of a three-hour movie in, in 1984, and so he finally got to go put everything back. All it does is fills it out a little bit, gives it a little more richness, lets some of the characters breathe a little bit more. But whatever version you watch, it's a brilliant, brilliant movie. Yeah, if you think that Amadeus is some kind of stagey, stodgy, dry thing that you have to struggle through, like eating your peas, No. This one is joyous, entertaining, funny, sad, and the score is pretty good. Who wrote the music for this film? Very famously, the uh, at the Oscars that year, um, it was Maurice Jarre, and he had gone through the entire award season winning and watching Amadeus win everything else. And at the Oscars when he won, he famously said, I was lucky uh, Mozart was not eligible. 
this year. <laughs> that music, especially if you see this theatrically, it's a powerful theatrical experience. Well, what do we got next month? A groundbreaking documentary about a life cut tragically short. Family tensions, Paul McCartney and Diane Keaton with a machine gun. There will be terror in the aisles, gold prospecting and gangsters, and Bill Murray gets serious. All that plus crazy teachers and ice cream truck wars. The whole world will stop making sense, but we'll be back for October of 1984. I'm a writer. These are my friends. This is what led to my artwork. This is my art and where it came from. (laughs) 